Jesus, help us to understand what that is all about and what it means for our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, good to see all of you here, those of you at home and those of you in the community center, as well as our high schoolers and our middle schoolers in the 11 o'clock service. Thank you all for, uh, for being here. Uh, this week, I saw a headline uh, in the New York Times that said, Harvard report, reports disappointing 8.1% return on endowment. And the first line said, describing the results as, quote, disappointing, Harvard University reported that its $37 billion endowment earned only 8.1% this year. Aww. Doesn't that just, it's so sad, right? Measly $3 billion. How are they going to make ends meet, right? So very disappointing. That just goes to show there are lots of disappointments. All, even Harvard University gets disappointed. So I want to ask you, when has been a time you've been disappointed recently because something didn't go the way that you had hoped it would go? Maybe it was something in school, or maybe a relationship didn't go the way that you had hoped, or maybe you didn't get into the college that you wanted. Maybe you don't have the friends you wanted or the job that you hoped for. You know, like for me, I, I, I'm starting to think I, I may need to withdraw my name as a potential NBA draft pick because I'm beginning to think it's not going to happen. Some disappointments are little, some disappointments are huge uh, and very painful. Marriage problems, health issues, very painful. Well, we're going through the book of Daniel, and the background to Daniel is the Babylonian Empire conquered Jerusalem and took thousands of Jews into exile in Babylon, and Daniel and his friends are part of that. And they would have been teenagers at this point, around 15 or 16 years old, which just shows God uses all kinds of people, and God loves to use teenagers. They're all over the Bible uh, where God uses them. And they have seen, these teenagers, they've seen their hopes completely crumble. They're not going to get to go to the college that they wanted to go to. They're not going to have the friends they wanted, the job they wanted, because they've been carted off into exile, and their country's been destroyed. Their whole future has been stolen. And now they are unwanted foreigners uh, where they would be despised for their race in Babylon, and they were in a culture that was hostile toward their faith in God. And the story that, this story that we just read of this dream, it shows how we can respond when things don't go the way that we had hoped they would go. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has had a dream. So he calls in all of his wise men, and they said, Tell us the dream, O king, and we will interpret it for you. But he won't tell them the dream. Instead, he says this, This is what I have decided. If you don't tell me what my dream was and then interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Feel free to succeed. Right? What he's doing is he's testing them. Anyone can make up an interpretation to a dream, but if they know what his dream was, well, that shows they have real wise abilities, right? But they can't. They don't know what his dream was. They can't figure it out. Sort of like a news story I remember reading years ago about a psychic who won a million dollars in a lawsuit because she claimed that the doctor's CT scan impaired her ability to predict the future. Okay, shouldn't she have seen that coming? <laughs> right? So the wise men, they can't figure out his dream. So Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, I'm going to kill all of you then, wise men, which would include Daniel and his friends, because as we saw last week, they are by now working for the king. So after all the suffering they've gone through, the war, their parents being killed, being carted off into exile, they have clawed their way back to some semblance of a decent life, and now it's about to be wiped out again by one sword stroke for the second time. Their kingdom is crumbling. But notice how Daniel responds. 
So the first thing Daniel does is he prays, which I know seems very basic, but do we do that? Because sometimes I don't think that's our first instinct, to pray. I mean, you know, maybe we'll pray about a problem for five minutes and then spend hours trying to fix the problem, but Jesus would spend hours in prayer and then spend five minutes fixing the problem. So one of those is better than the other. So Daniel, in this story, the first thing he does is says he returned to his house, explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, a.k.a. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. And I love the word mystery there. It refers to the king's dream, but also when things don't go the way that we had hoped they would, when the bottom kind of falls out, there's a mystery. Like, God, why did this happen? Where are you? What are you doing here? There's kind of a mystery that requires wisdom from the Holy Spirit, so we have to pray. Second thing, when things don't go our way, when our kingdoms crumble, second thing, get a bigger perspective. So Daniel prays, and God reveals the dream and its meaning to Daniel, and so he goes to the palace, and it says the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, because remember from last week, the Babylonians gave them all Babylonian names, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Now, right there, there's a wealth of information. Obviously, Daniel is a highly placed official. He has access to the king. So obviously, he is an, a highly placed official. So the question is, what is a good Jew doing taking on a pagan name and serving in a pagan, tyrannical, oppressive regime? And what does that teach us about how we respond when things don't go the way that we had hoped? Well, to really understand this passage, in fact, to understand the entire book of Daniel, I've got to give you a little bit of historical background from the book of Jeremiah, which we looked at earlier this year. And Jeremiah is all in, behind the book of Daniel. So a little historical context to understand what's going on here. During the exile, most of the prophets were telling the people in Babylon, these Babylonians are pure evil. They're horrible people. They have nothing to do with them. Don't interact with them. Don't mix with them. Pray against them. God's going to judge them. And we're going to go back to Jerusalem any day now. But you just keep yourself separate. But Jeremiah has a different message. A scandalous message that infuriates the religious folk so much they call him a traitor and want to have him executed. Jeremiah said, oh, no, 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 no. Just you settle down for a long winter's nap. Y'all are going to be in Babylon for 70 years. This is what God says. Don't listen to the prophets. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. Instead, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And the Hebrew word for peace there is shalom, which means way more than peace. It's the complete economic, relational, cultural, spiritual flourishing of Babylon. In other words, you go seek the flourishing of your hated enemy. Don't you dare separate yourselves from them. You go and seek their flourishing. So you can see why they called Jeremiah a traitor, right? And notice, God says to the city, I have carried you. God is saying, look, I know this exile thing isn't what you'd hoped for. I know you didn't want to be in exile, but I'm in this. Trust me, I'm working through this. For centuries, I have warned you to stop worshiping idols and to care for immigrants and the poor and the oppressed, and you wouldn't listen. So now I've done something drastic to get your attention. I am using this exile to purify you and strengthen your faith in me. But more than that, to bring my flourishing to the whole world through you, starting right there in Babylon. Don't conform to the culture, but don't separate from it either. Instead, seek to bless it. 
That's why Daniel is in the court of the king. That's why Daniel is able to go into the king's presence. He is seeking the flourishing of Babylon. He's following what Jeremiah said to do. See, what God is saying to the exiles and what Daniel is living out is this bigger perspective. God says to the exile, look, there's something going on here that's bigger than the exile, bigger than your little kingdom crumbling. I'm building a new kingdom, my kingdom, called the kingdom of God, and I'm building it through you, a kingdom with very different rules. It's about restoring what was lost and reviving what has died, repairing what is broken, renewing what is old, replacing what is stolen, redeeming what seems hopeless, releasing those in bondage, reaching those in darkness, realigning your desires, realizing my intentions, reclaiming what was mine, resurrecting from the tomb, rejoicing in my presence as I restore all things. Did your kingdom crumble? Rejoice, I'm replacing it with mine. Get a bigger perspective here. I'm doing something bigger, bigger than your problems, bigger than your doubts, bigger than your despair, bigger than your disappointment. Look up, I am making all things new. And Daniel here is following Jeremiah's advice to have a bigger perspective of what God is doing and be part of it. Instead of despair and disappointment, when the bottom fell out of his world, not once but twice, Daniel got a bigger perspective. What is God doing here? This is awesome. The king wants someone to tell him what his dream is. This is awesome. It's impossible and dangerous. All the makings for God to do something cool. See, hope is not getting what we want. Hope is a certainty in two things, that the God revealed in Jesus is always with us and that that God is always doing something good. When we're down to nothing, he is always up to something, and he uses even hard things to reclaim them and force them to be the eventual servants of our joy. When your kingdom crumbles, get a bigger perspective of how God may be using that to bring his kingdom in you and through you to others. This works in big things like being carted off into exile or marriages falling apart, but also in the daily disappointments of life. I told you last week that we dropped our oldest, uh, Holly, off at college over uh, at the UW last week. And she wanted to live in a, a sorority, which meant that she had to go through Rush. And that's where you go to social events for about 10 hours a day for five days. And then the sororities vote on you whether they choose you for their sorority or they don't choose you for their sorority. It's called Rush. It should be called Hell because it sounds terrible, right? And she would, she'd go over there for the days and do the rush stuff, and then she'd come and stay with us at night. And all was going well until the morning of the fifth day. The last day. Your last chance to make an impression before the sororities choose you or they don't choose you. So this is a big deal, right? This is about where she's going to live for the next four years, who her friends are going to be, and I have her permission to tell this story. On the morning of the fifth day, she discovered a stain on her dress that would not come out. And she only had a few minutes before she had to leave to get ready. So this injected quite a bit of tension into our house. Lots of tension. My wife tried to help for a while, and then she punted it over to me, and I tried to help. And I went to Holly and said, the solution is obvious. Just wear a different dress, right? You would think, right? No, 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 no. It had to be a formal dress, a certain kind of dress. This is the only one she had that would work. So I tried some other suggestions. Her dress was white, so I thought of using white out, you know, like maybe that would work. But then I realized we probably don't have any white out, right? Like who uses that anymore? 
I don't, I don't even know if high school kids know what white, in the community center, is it white out of the 11 o'clock service, guys? I don't even know if we use it anymore, right? So, and it just got more and more tense. It just escalated, and there was yelling, and there was crying, and then there was more yelling, and then there was more crying, but I finally calmed down and drove her to rush while she was wearing the stained dress, and she was crying, and I kept saying, this, this is going to be great. You're going to make a joke about the dress. It's going to show that you're cool under fire. They're going to be so impressed with you. Every sorority is going to want you. Didn't work, right? And I said, oh, you're beautiful, and you're smart, and you're funny. Who wouldn't want you? Didn't work. But then a miracle. My brilliant wife back at home called a friend of ours from this church who, when she was in college, was in a sorority and had been helping Holly. And that friend called Holly on her cell phone while I was driving her over and within a few minutes talked Holly off the ledge. Said most of the same things I said, but when she said it, it worked, right? <laughs> it's called communal parenting. It's very, very helpful. So I dropped Holly off for the rush stuff and I drove back across the lake and I felt really sad. Like, like, would it be the end of the world if she didn't get chosen for a sorority? Well, of course not. But no parent wants to see their kid get hurt. And this was, you know, this is important to her. It's about her friends, where she's going to live and all that. Plus, I am a sucker when my daughters cry. Like, when my daughters, I just cave in when my daughters cry. Like, I'll give them anything, right? Like, here, here's a Mercedes, right? Like, you know, we sold your brother to scientific experiments to pay for it, but here... So I felt sad because I could just see my daughter's kingdom crumbling. But then I thought, what could God do with her not getting into a sorority? Let's say this stained dress became a real problem. Well, maybe the rejection would give Holly compassion for others. You know, maybe guide her to friends who aren't so shallow that they reject you because of a stained dress. Maybe in her disappointment, Jesus would become more real. I thought of all kinds of ways that God might build his kingdom in her if her kingdom crumbled. Now, I get that some disappointments are exceedingly painful. Divorce and health problems and all of that, and I'll, and I'll, I'll address that in a little bit. But even in the more daily disappointments of life, Jesus is always up to something bigger, always doing something. That whole thing helped Holly have just a little more confidence and get a little bit bigger perspective on life. And right now you're a little impatient with me, aren't you? Because like, you want to know how it turned out with the dress thing, right? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Because the point is Jesus is Lord no matter what. Not satisfied, are you? Okay, so here's what happened. I picked her up that night. I asked, how did it go with the stained dress? She said, nobody noticed. And then the next day she got selected for the sorority that she most wanted to be in and even had a touch of Christian influence here or there, right? Which was part of the draw for her. So, so that's what happened. There, are you satisfied? All right. When your kingdom crumbles, get a bigger perspective of how God might be using it to bring his kingdom in you. All right, let's keep going through the text. Daniel tells the king what his dream was. This was your king, dream, king. It was a giant statue. The head was gold. The chest was silver. The stomach was bronze. And the, the feet were a mix of iron and clay. So sort of looking like this right there, right? Isn't that awesome? I'm going to get me one of those at Pottery Barn this afternoon. <laughs> And then this rock kind of comes and smashes it, right? And then the rock grows into a mountain, and then Daniel gives the interpretation, and he says to the king, here's what it means. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Just as you saw that the feet were partly clay and partly iron, this will be a divided kingdom. The people will be a mixture and will not remain united. 
So this is a vision of the future. And so all kinds of theories of what, you know, what, what, are, what are these kingdoms, what does this all mean? Well, Daniel says that the first kingdom, the head of gold, that's Babylon, right? That, he says that, You're, you are that king, right? That was going to be succeeded by another kingdom, which is probably the Persian Empire, which conquered Babylon when Daniel was an old man. And after Daniel had died, the Persians were conquered by the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great. And then finally, the fourth kingdom, the one that's a mix of iron and clay and a mixture of different kinds of people, is probably the Roman Empire, which was a multi-ethnic empire, and that eventually became divided, like the text says. And then the stone that destroys it is most likely Jesus and Christianity. Because Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. This is the meaning of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. So Jesus calls himself the stone that the builders rejected, that became a cornerstone of a whole new kingdom. And God's kingdom is not built with human hands. It is, it, is, it is something that God does. So that's probably the best explanation of this dream. But ultimately, whatever this dream means, what you've got to understand about biblical prophecy is it's not so much about predicting the future as telling deep truths. It's not about fortune-telling. It's about truth-telling. And the deeper truth of this dream is what to do when your kingdom crumbles, because all these kingdoms crumble. And in the very next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar builds this statue that he saw in his dream, because that's how he wants people to think of him, this giant colossus astride the world and everyone in awe of him. And he made it because his, he controlled one of the largest empires in history. And the point here is we all have our dreams and our aspirations. We all have them. We all have our glittering statue. When my uh, oldest daughter, she's getting a lot of airtime in this sermon, which she'll enjoy, right? When she was only eight years old, she really liked the singer Carrie Underwood. So she sent an autographed picture of herself to Carrie Underwood. <laughs> we had to explain to her autographs work the other way around, right? Like the celebrity sends you. But I just, I love that. You know, Carrie Underwood wants to have a picture of me. And somewhere Carrie Underwood does, right? Well, what my daughter did innocently, most of us do more deliberately, myself included, we want to be thought of as successful and important. We got our kingdoms, and we're building our kingdoms, but they're our kingdom. And just like this statue had feet of clay and crumbled, the foundation of our kingdoms may be brittle, and they may break, and that scares us. That scares us. So, for instance, if you build your life on academic success, you know what's going to scare you? The grade report. Build your life on money, you know what's going to scare you? The market. Build your life on looks, you know what's going to scare you? The mirror, <laughs> birthdays, right? If I build my life on the success of this church as measured by how many people come and, you know, a big budget and all that, you know what's going to scare me? Monday's attendance report or sunny days in the summer when people don't come or 10 a.m. Seahawks games. <laughs> Not that I notice any of those things. It's just a hypothetical, right? <laughs> so when your kingdom begins to crumble, pray, get a bigger perspective. Third, examine your foundations because they may be made of clay. Your kingdom may be built on brittle clay, and you need to find a firmer foundation. And the text tells us what that is. Out of all the materials listed in the king's dream, gold, silver, bronze, rock, which is the least valuable? The rock, right? But the rock grows into a mountain that covers the whole world. And what that means is that God chooses what the world regards as least valuable to make something of enormous value. So if you're feeling like your statue's not very shiny, you're not a supermodel, you're not super successful, or maybe you are and you're a little bored and restless, no matter how low you feel, our firm foundation is that God will use that to build something bigger and better. 
Hope is not getting what we want. It is certainty that Jesus is with us and is making all things work for good. Which brings me to the last point. Pray, get a bigger perspective, examine our foundations, and finally give it time. In the dream, the rock becomes a mountain, but it takes time. Centuries is this vision. But in the meantime, God gave Daniel signs that he was with them. He, he allowed Daniel to interpret the dream. That was a reminder that God was with Daniel, right? Not that everything is perfect. His people are still slaves, right? And, and, and Daniel, he, 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 his ability to interpret the dream saves him from being executed in the long run. But in the short run, it made his life harder because he had to go to the king and say, your, your dream, king, means that you, uh, your, your kingdom is built on brittle clay and it's going to be swept away. Not usually the kind of thing evil despots want to hear, Right? So everything was not fully fixed, but God had already displayed his long-range plans to Daniel in this dream. The basic point was this, take heart, take heart. Things may be hard, but I am with you, and I'm making all things work for good. And nothing can stop God's purposes. In fact, in the end of this story, Nebuchadnezzar the king is worshiping the God of Daniel. A woman whose permission I have to share this story, she sent me an email about what happened when her kingdom crumbled. She wrote, 10 years ago, I was in this horrible process of divorcing my ex-husband who had hidden an addiction for years, decided not to seek treatment or address related mental health issues, and he wanted a divorce. She went on to write and say, I asked God why. Why had I chosen to marry him? Why wouldn't he face the problem directly? Why did I get dragged into this? Why did I lose my marriage? Why, why, why? No answer. 10 years of personal recovery and seeming silence from God with no answer to that question. I've since remarried a non-addict who has a child facing similar issues. The answer to why, why, why finally came for such a time as this. Because of the excruciating experience years before, I have some skills to advocate for those with mental illness. I know how to bring things into the light that grow in the dark. I know about self-care, boundaries, and education, and all kinds of skills I never would have had if it weren't for that past horrible experience. Old me prayed addictions and mental disorders would simply just go away on their own and everything would magically be fine. New me knows that I have to fight and knows better how to fight. What a gift that trauma from 10 years ago was. What a gift that trauma was. And who'd have ever thought I would say that? Thank heavens for that excruciating experience and for an answer to the question from a decade ago with no answer, why? To develop skills to help a child live. My crappy former marriage may just save my stepchild. When her kingdom crumbled, she prayed. It took a while, but she got a bigger perspective of what God was doing, and she found a firmer foundation, one rooted in what God was doing in and through her, all of which took time, 10 years. And the fact that she can now see God at work doesn't erase the pain of those 10 years. Sometimes things are hard, and they just are hard for a long time. And she still faces challenges with her stepchild, but God took a rock, something of no value, a painful divorce, and over time grew it into a mountain of hope. So how about you? Where have you been or where are you now afraid you might be disappointed in something that doesn't work out the way you are hoping? Turn to Jesus in prayer, ask him to give you a bigger perspective, and discover that when our kingdoms crumble, it's like tearing down an old house to build a newer, better one. Because God is always, always renewing, restoring, reviving, reclaiming, resurrecting, bringing his kingdom, his shalom, his flourishing in you, through you, and through you all around you to the world he loves so much. You are not alone. 
The God who is always at work is with you. That is our hope. So Jesus, thank you that's what you do. Thank you that you take all the parts of our life, the good and the bad, and you use it to move us closer to you and get your work done in us. Lord, we bring all the things we're worried about. We bring all the things that are burdening us, all the failed disappointments of our lives, and we give them to you because we know you can make those bones live. We know you can bring something good out of it. Thank you that you do that, Jesus. We, we pray this in your name. Amen.